episode of the Walt Pelier Happy Hour here on WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and today we will be talking about how things in Montpelier shake out for Wyndham County with Representative Emily Kornheiser, who's one of the representatives for Brattleboro. Welcome, Emily. Hello, Olga. Hello, and then thank you for joining us, Dr. Eitan Nasreddin-Longo. Did I get that right? Oh, you yay. Did. You did, yes. Um, who is a professor, but also the co-chair for Fair and Impartial Policing um, in the state. And wow, do we have a lot to talk about Fair and Impartial Policing in the state. <laughs> Actually, it's only, it's only for the Vermont State Police. There is no... That's right. There Thank is you. no overarching committee for all jurisdictions. That's... Which is an interesting conversation about how it is Vermont structures its... Yeah. Indeed um, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so just a little background for, for listeners. Um, in case you want to do some more, more reading, um, Aton was part of the Racial Disparities in Criminal and Juvenile Justice System, also known as RDAP. Um, and they released a report that uh, you spent two years working on, correct? Yes, exactly. It was released in December. I think a lot of people probably missed it for, you know, pandemic reasons, unfortunately. Um, but it makes a number of recommendations to the state about um, how to move forward and reduce racial disparities in the criminal justice and juvenile justice system. And just quickly, four of the recommendations were to allow or, or to em empower the Human Rights Commission to field complaints of bias in state government, um, do better data collecting uh, for the- And that would be everybody to do better data collecting, not simply the Human Rights Commission. Oh, yes, thank you. That's a good clarity. And I'm sorry, when you say everybody, do you mean across the state government across or the just- government, yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things that we recommended was, was a certain amount of standardization Oh, okay. Um, we actually went even further and said that we thought there should be a sort of a bureau, in fact, that was responsible for this statewide um, that would then disseminate, make it very, you know, put it up in, in some public spot clearly online, that it would be raw data so that people could draw their own conclusions from it, uh, and that it would be standardized because at the moment, you know, agency X does one thing, agency Y does another thing. It's very difficult to draw conclusions. Yes. Yeah, that is, it is interesting for such a small state, we actually aren't very good with data collection in some respects. Yeah, that's quite true. That's yeah. quite true. Yes, yes. Um, um, just to, to finish your the highlights from the report, um, also to include training for emergency responders and police officers to reduce racial profiling. And then perhaps last but far from least and important is that we as a state and a community need to become more comfortable with talking about race and dis disparities racial disparities yep. so that we can actually bring some of these issues to the table. Um, Correct. Yeah. So thank you, uh, Eitan, for joining us. 
Sure. And Thank you. and talking about these these issues. My yeah. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because you know, right now in Brattleboro specifically, there's a lot of talk about defunding the police. And while I think for many people, police violence might feel like new information, um, for many people in our communities, particularly people of color, this is not a new discussion. Now, a lot of us are sort of wondering why suddenly a lot of, you know, white people suddenly went, oh, this one, you know, what, Tamir Rice was, what, 12? Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> somehow we, yeah. there were three children in all yeah. of this, and that didn't seem to catch people's uh, ire or indeed imagination. So a lot of us are kind of, why this one? <laughs> you know, and, you know, you don't want to say that too loudly because one is grateful that uh, the attentions of power are on this, but. Um, it is difficult sometimes to tamp that, I don't know, distrust, anger um, down a bit so that you can simply get around that and be productive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One piece of that that I've been really seeing, because um, even as a white woman, I've been like confused and shocked, like, why, why this right. moment? I don't understand. <laughs> okay, yes, let's talk about this. And um, in the legislature, you know, when people are talking, you know, reading things online and they're so excited, I'm like, there's actually a bill on the wall for every single one of these proposals already. Right. You could just take them off the wall and pass them. Um, right. And so knowing that these aren't new conversations. Right. And knowing that um, these are not new issues. Trying exactly. to, I'm curious to hear from you a little bit more about the history of these working groups because so we can sort of figure out how how Vermont you know at some point in the past yeah. someone said enough to put those bills on the wall someone in power said enough to say okay we'll kick the can and put together a working group what if we could go yeah. back in history just a little bit to that because in some way well, what I've heard we're yeah. doing we're, at least we've been having these conversations kind of up until now absolutely um the fair and impartial policing committee for the state police has existed for about a decade um one of the founding members of that was curtis reed who of course is a brattleboro person um that has been going it was certainly needed um and it was you know it's very clearly focused on the state police uh it initially was around the uh the release of traffic stop data which they began to collect at the same time that the committee was created uh to look at that data and to make suggestions around issues of training and such that well that the data would have has certainly historically pointed to disparities in policing so the hope was then to get a sense of how those disparities played out and then make some suggestions about how they may be ameliorated. And that has largely become a question of training. Um, and so that's how that happened. All of these things seem to happen in interesting vacuums. 
Um, then in 2017, Act 54 created the, here we go, uh, <laughs> Racial Disparities in the Criminal and Juvenile Justice Systems Advisory Panel. And that then was under the aegis of the Attorney General's Office. And that was to look specifically, as the title says, at the criminal and juvenile justice systems. And what my sense is, is that all these bodies get convened in what seems to be a conceptual and epistemological vacuum. Why that is true in a state with 627,000 people baffles <laughs> me. But somehow it does and I you know on a well if I weren't so doe-eyed and optimistic I would say it's people's ego but um being doe-eyed and optimistic it's because everyone wants to change things and the problem is there's enormous amount of overlap that has finally been recognized by the new racial equity executive director Susanna Davis and, and she, she came on the show Three she came on in ago? September. Yeah. No, she not came on this show three weeks ago, just for our listeners. Oh, I want them to know oh, that they can sorry. go back and meet her inside our TV show. So sorry Got to it. interrupt you. Quite a right. Sorry. Okay. Keep on and going. And she has perhaps she spoke of this. She has convened a symposium. I it's not in a weird way, it's kind of like a committee of committees. Um <laughs> that we're all sort of holy of holies. Um we get together and there's a discussion we've met once so far um back before the pandemic got going um to sort of iron out where people work what do they do where are the overlaps what are the issues here um we're going to be meeting again shortly i mean in the next few weeks thank god because we really don't know what's going on in some ways. And now we have a new body, which is the task force around COVID. Um, and again, it just gets confusing at a mm -hmm. certain point. It feels like an enormous duplication of human effort. And I'm not entirely certain what that is supposed to achieve. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. I've been thinking about this recently because of another article I'm working on around uh, renaming a brook in Townsend and, you know, listening to one of the people who is trying to get this brook renamed, his frustration at why are people not moving fast enough? And then also the local community's frustration about feeling like they're not being listened to. Um, and just being forced into something. Um, and it's it's interesting because in Vermont, we have this sort of deep, you know, direct democracy. We can talk about whether it's it's functioning or not, but but we have that concept. We have a lot of of activism, and yet we don't necessarily have productive ways forward. and And I think, yeah. You know, that kind of echoes what you were saying about interesting vacuums and duplication right. of effort. Like, it makes me go back to some conversations that Emily and I have had that even as a state, we kind of lack a cohesive vision about where we want to be in, say, the next five years. Right. Um, right. And, yeah, how do we move beyond that? 
I, I saw, you know, someone on Twitter the other day said, um, I'm quoting Twitter, I never knew I'd do that, but um, yeah. pointed out, and Atan, you absolutely don't have to comment on this, um, but that Governor Scott is a manager and not a leader. And so he's, you know, skilled at shifting things within an existing framework or, you know, or using sales text techniques to change something, but the structural change that would really, and the vision to create something new is not sort of um, his bailiwick. And I don't want to put this all on him because we are all complicit in not oh, yeah. getting anything I, done. But I'm well, curious, and, when you have recommendations, like where, where do, when these panels put out recommendations, where do they go? <laughs> well, we wrote the RDAP, yeah. which is, shorthand for the racial disparities in the criminal and juvenile justice system advisory panel and RDAP is our acronym which takes less time meaning racial disparities advisory panel um we were charged with writing a report and submitting it to the legislature which we did um and we had a deadline uh, it was, we were presenting it at that point to Senate Judiciary, so to the panel that Senator Sears um, heads, and we had to have it in by the 4th of December of last year. So we were, we were ending up acting like college students, you know, it was, it was a, a massive push <laughs> at the end. I remember the week the month before we had um oh my god there was curtis's conference which i attended mm. i had to go teach a series of seminars the following morning at duke university down in durham um that was saturday and sunday and then monday and then i got on a plane on tuesday to come back to an RDAP meeting that night, um, which was gonna be the final meeting to pull it all together. The only reason that didn't happen is because of the weather. So all of this to get this report done and then submit the report to the legislature and I don't know, unicorns, rainbows, everything would be fine after that. What has been apparent is that after George Floyd's death and subsequent somewhat infernal energy coming out of Montpelier, um, a lot of players who in my naivete I would expect would have read said report, which after all they commissioned as a body, didn't. So I don't know in some ways how to answer what you're saying. Uh, um, it was supposed to go into a report and being a college professor, I expect people will then read things, but that I know that's naive. I mean, my God, how many years have I been teaching freshmen? So- um, I was gonna say. <laughs> yeah, right, you know, syllabus, what syllabus? And so it has felt like that with the report and, but that's where it's supposed to go. Um, but I, 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 it's frustrating because on some level, I would think that would be great, right? You know, it goes into a report, people read the report and then make choices beyond that. We were careful in how we wrote it. Um, we were careful in how we came to the process of writing it. Actually, I was very concerned with being a facilitator 
and getting everybody in. When I first came on the panel, I remember saying, well, when we've got a document and everybody hates it, but everybody can say, you know what, I can live with this. We will know our work is done. Mm -hmm. Nobody should be happy. Everyone should be miserable and okay with that. That's democracy. It's compromise. That's how this goes. And we did that. We did that. It was unanimous, the acceptance of the panel for that of that report. Um, so I kind of felt like that was an important moment and that that really would put things forth for the legislature. But I did not get that people just don't read. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know what? that raises for me the question that raises for me is when we're talking about structural systems and how do we move things forward is when the the legislature created that um impetus to create that report and the panel um in some ways it's not the panel's job to then say well here's what you do with the report right. so no, it no, makes me wonder like when that legislation was laid out what was then said like okay this report's going to be generated and then it will immediately go to the committee of or it will immediately you see like what's does the legislation yeah. even list the next step we always name that the next step is it goes to a committee and sometimes there's a mindfulness around um, the time of year when it would go to the committee so that perhaps it would get in before the filing deadline for drafting requests or something like that. What right. I've been working on in the Government Accountability Committee, which is a joint committee, is really helping people see that when you request a report, maybe you don't actually want a report. Maybe you want a presentation. Maybe you want six bullet points. Maybe you want it to just go to legislative council and have them summarize it for you. Right. But maybe, you know, really getting clear that a report, you want, information back from someone, a report might not be the best way to do that. I think in this case, a report might have been the best thing to do. Um, I'm not saying it's not. And I think in some ways we have an obligation to read things that we request, especially in this case, where now we're saying, oh, wow, our constituents finally want us to do something about racial justice. What should we do? We don't need to reinvent that conversation. We have your report. And so I have some questions for you about your report. Sure, sure. Um, for the data, that makes, you know, I have, um, again, with the Government Accountability Committee, having good data is incredibly important. We have some structures for that. We have a chief data officer who works across state government. We have a right. chief accountability officer. We now right. have a director of racial justice. We have some, because of our strange little local control patchwork, we probably have a few police departments that like still just use paper and pens and others right. who might use data systems. And I can see that it's gonna, it would cost some money and some training to get people to like all use a computer together. Right. Judging from my experience in the legislature. On training for police officers, mm -hmm. um, we're having, it seems like the, the activist left is having a huge debate about whether or not training can be meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm curious about how that conversation played out on the panel. Um, I think we were, I mean, and part of it maybe, you know, there were a fair number of us who actually teach. I mean, we're professionals. Yeah. Um, that's what we do. I mean, I've been in a classroom as a professor since 
I don't know, 1990. Um, you know, I, so it's, one of the things that's problematic with those conversations, at least for me personally, is it's very American in that there are great buzz terms and nobody defines them. Mm. Training. Well, okay. Um, what are we talking about? Um, the way I do it is really very different from what other people do. Um, I'm very persuaded by people like Paulo Freire. Mm -hmm. I'm persuaded by people like Bell Hooks. Mm -hmm. um, Angela Davis, who I had the honor to meet and speak with when I was teaching in California. Um, you know, there were a number of people who actually work on something called radical radical pedagogy. Yeah. So that's quite different. When I read these things about, you know, training not working, I, it's just not persuasive. It's not persuasive because nobody's defining what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, there was an article in Slate the other day about this. And I was like, you know, this is just irresponsible. So the panel when we talked about it, I'm not sure we defined it. That may have been a problem, but we were also very conscious of, as David Scher from the Attorney General's office put it, he's a member of the panel, um, making recommendations from what he said was 30,000 feet mm -hmm. and making them broad. And I thought that was a good idea because we're not the legislators. Yeah, That's their job. Mm -hmm. is to get specific. Our job was to go this area in this way, and that was it. Although it was kind of interesting because then we got to the, I was presenting this to Senate Judiciary, and people were like, oh gosh, we would really like more specificity. Well, that kind of gets to what you were just saying, Representative. Um, you know, okay, this would have been a really, really good time actually six months ago for you to tell people what you mean. Mm -hmm. Because we went with a definition. Um, if that's not what you want, then you kind of have an obligation to tell the people who are doing the labor that that's not what you want. Mm -hmm. And there was some talk when we submitted that report that well, we'd like you to kind of tighten this up a bit and make more specific recommendations. I don't know where that's gone. I mean, so much that happened before the pandemic, I don't know where it's gone. Mm -hmm. But the, I do remember that being said. I believe that was um, Skylar Nash actually said that. Mm -hmm. And there was fairly broad agreement on, the, on that committee that that would be a good thing. Thank you, Aitan. Um, any, we we should break to hear from underwriters, but Emily or, or Eitan, before we do, any last minute thoughts to leave listeners with? Oh my God. We'll come back. Okay, perfect. Yeah. We'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, hang tight, everybody. The Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM will return. Your happy hour here on WVW 107.7 LP. 
Brattleboro, your community radio station. I forgot where I was in a moment. Um, and just as a reminder, the opinions on this show are ours and ours alone and not the radio stations. So you've been warned. Um, I am your host, Olga Peters, and I am speaking with Emily Kornheiser, one of the representatives from Brattleboro to the State House, as well as Eitan, Dr. Eitan Nez. Nazreddin Longo, (laughs) sorry, Um, who is been working with what we have called RDAP, which is the Racial Disparities in the Criminal and Juvenile Justice System panel. I just got totally muddled there. I am sorry to both of you. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's because, you know, the conversation we are having around, you know, racial justice and how do we make that a real thing in Vermont just has my brain flying in so many directions. And I think for me, during the break, one thing I realized that as a journalist, you know, some very wise person told me once that we can never control when someone enters a process. Mm -hmm. And so while we may have worked on something for 10 years, someone might come to it fresh and they're all excited. and you just kind of have to roll with that. But what I'm realizing as a journalist, and I have no idea how I'll make this happen, but I should, um, is we probably need to do a better job at this is what you need to know. Or if you're new to this, this is here are resources. That's true. So that yeah. maybe we can get more people on the same page at the same time. I mean, the question is where do we build in the required cultural humility so that when someone shows up in a process they realize that we are all you know we're all operating on this you know a flow of time and when we jump into that flow of time we have a responsibility to look backwards for a moment at least right yeah Um, and so you know i don't know if that comes from a good liberal arts education or something that happens in nursery school i you know i have a lot of my own biases about that um but that is a very challenging and I imagine more yeah. frustrating situation for you, Atan, than even for me. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, you know, it, yeah, I mean, I, it is, it's been very hard over the last few weeks to just get over my, my annoyance that everybody, suddenly everyone has a fire lit under them. And I have to confess, I had a very weird response that when I tell people what I first felt when I saw the George Floyd video, it was awful. It was horrible. How do you know that it's more awful or more horrible than any of the other videos we've seen? I watched it, my stomach turned, and then I thought, and I remember thinking this, I think I have some chicken breasts in the freezer. Thank God I don't have to go to Hannaford's. And that's, you know, so, and then everybody blew up. And it was like, oh, okay, here we go. And then everything got very fast, very, very fast. And that, you know, there there have been a lot of arguments about that. Mm-hmm. There have been a lot oh, of arguments about, about those arguments. Well, they've been, you know, there are people going, thank God it's going fast, let's move. And then others, and I'm more on their side, was, you know, wait a minute, this, you, you, 400 years of racism and we're going to have a few bills in the Vermont legislature and poof, 
utopia. Mm -hmm. um, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Um, the speed, I find it annoying, to be mm -hmm. honest. I find it extremely annoying. I think it's unwise. Um, Winston Churchill, I've been using, quoting him a lot, this particular quote to people. Um, you know, he said that Americans can always be counted on to do the right thing, but only after they try every other option. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of feel like that's going on with all of these bills. And I certainly understand impatience um, after 400 years of this crap to stop it. Um, the problem is, though, we're still working with democracy, and that didn't change when George Floyd was murdered. It's still mm -hmm. the same system. And the old bromide that we all got in civics is democracy is slow. Mm -hmm. It just is. That didn't just stop because of Minneapolis. So I get frustrated with, you know, we need to go quickly and then things don't get thought out particularly well. That happened last session with um, the so-called Me Too bill. And several people, um, including a very dear jurist that I know, were saying, um, this is great, you know, but at that point, what about racial discrimination? Mm -hmm. What about discrimination on the basis of gender expression or sexual orientation? I mean, you know, age, um, ability, so on and mm -hmm. so forth. And everybody was like, no, 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 we just got to get this through. We'll get back to it. And mm -hmm. it never oh, happened. So it's kind of like, well, that's what speed does. Why don't we recognize that? And then do something, I don't know. He, he and I were talking, we were talking about consent decrees, which justice has put on, well, for instance, Baltimore and such. Why is it we couldn't do that for the legislature? Make a consent decree that said, by this date, as they do, you will do X, mm -hmm. you will do Y by this date, so mm -hmm. on and so forth. So it, you, it's very clear to the population of the state, we have to move on this, but at the same time, we know that we have to do it thoughtfully. It's actually, like, go ahead. So, so we actually did that with the Global Warming Solutions Act. And right. it's, um, it's funny because a lot of people think, well, that didn't really do anything because it's just right. like a bill about bills, essentially. Right. But what it is, is it creates that clear vision and timeline to enable us to actually think strategically. Exactly. And I think we often move fast because it's very difficult to sustain political courage and curiosity. <laughs> and so when we have this you know, call to arms from constituents, um, it takes a lot of courage to say yes, 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 and we need to do this well. We need to do our homework. Mm -hmm. We need to do the negotiations. We need to do the stakeholder engagement. And to have people actually believe us that we're going to then get something done. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes, right, sometimes a working group, sometimes stakeholder engagement is just a way to punt something and never do anything and never read the report. And sometimes it is a meaningful way of really 
creating the best possible policy that will mm -hmm. make a difference rather than just check a box. I, oh, sorry, Eitan. Go ahead, go ahead. I was just gonna say on this, this issue of definition, you know, defining like what we mean when we say training or defund the police or whatever. Um, and then also that issue of speed, I'm finding when I'm having interviews with community members, this new theme of, or at least new to me, of, well, unless you move fast, government, towns, whatever, unless you move fast, then your, wait, how do I say this? Your speed proves that you care. Mm -hmm. And See, if you I, don't I, move fast, then you don't care. I just find that ridiculous, frankly. Mm -hmm. I just find that profoundly ridiculous. 400 years of systemic racism, you don't even see where it is half the time. It's so thoroughly and completely stitched into the body politic and its conversations and its interactions. There is no way to do that quickly and actually get at it. You're gonna lose something. Mm -hmm. I mean, this happened with S219. I mean, I, I, I stopped talking about it. I finally was getting all, you know, towards the end last week, please, you know, please testify. I was like, no, I'm done. You people aren't listening. I'm over. I have to worry about whether there are chicken breasts for dinner. And one of the things that came up in the RDAP was this sounds lovely um, that, you know, if different municipal, uh, different law enforcement agencies don't have the racial data to get data together before what six months before they apply for a grant from the state they don't get it so it came up in the meetings um james pepper actually brought this up he said well the, of the sheriff's association yeah and okay. state's attorneys yeah and he he said well the problem is what happens with smaller departments that have only three or four people who's going to do this data compiling and there's no money in the bill because there never is mm -hmm. um it's just this sort of godlike let there be light and then it's like up to the angels or something mm -hmm. or a little seraphim and um and pepper was saying this is a real problem i was like hell yeah it is i know what goes on in vsp around this there's someone who collects the data who's a brilliant woman, she does it as a sideline. That's the gold standard, someone doing it as a sideline. So I've testified and went, y'all gotta stop because there are already too many animosities mm -hmm. between all the other agencies and the state police around this. So what you're gonna enshrine now in law is a two-tier system that basically says you have to already have money in order to get money. Are you sure you wanna do that? And basically the answer that came down just by fact was, yeah, we do. Mm -hmm. And that's going fast. Mm -hmm. That's what going fast gets you. Mm -hmm. I, I just find that it's so self-defeating and I'm just gonna be really judgmental here, stupid, that I just, it, it, it's like hardly worth anybody's time. Mm -hmm. I mean, slow down, think. In fact, one woman who sits on the Fair and Impartial Policing Committee, I was sending out emails like every hour going, hi, I need your feedback like now. And now they go, what do you mean now? I'm like, like now? 
She is a doctor of psychology in the middle of the state, um, Caucasian, cisgendered, um, and she said, you know what? <laughs> she said, this just shows how serious the legislature really is about um, input. It, it, they're clearly not. Another person said exactly the same thing to me. They're clearly not interested in it. We should remind them of that at election time. And furthermore, they've made it quite clear that black lives may matter, but that white egos and careers matter more. Mm -hmm. um, I related that. I mean, I said, you know, I'm not trying to be inflammatory, but you all need to hear what's going on out there. I didn't hear there was any feedback though on this. It was kind of, you know, I, I have all sorts of ideas about what to do about getting um, the community involved. But it, it just, it's not going anywhere because it will take time. It won't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. um, it'll take effort. And it, it's like, no, we just want something to get down. Mm -hmm. It's frustrating. So I absolutely hear you. And one of, um on the door of my um, regular work office, I have that um, the section that in the principles of white supremacy about urgency. I don't know if you've right. Yeah, um, and so absolutely try to sort of hold to that when making decisions, when right. thinking about funding, all of that stuff. And um, when I think about the legislature and. Um, the relationship with constituents and where courage lies. And the fact that I think people, I think my colleagues feel that unless something is done now, there will never be an opportunity to do it again because constituents will be will care about something else next week, next month. Um, Not brown people. I know, I know. Not the brown people. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just, there's a balance, it seems to me, to be struck. Um, the legislature's in, I keep getting, the metaphors that people keep using to describe this work are metaphors out of nature. It's that they're talking about the facticity of a mountain. The mountain is there. If the mountain decides to crumble, they're in a damn thing anybody's going to do about it. So it's all, I, and I, I, I kind of, with well, a couple people have stopped and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Stop getting away with having no human agency here. Mm -hmm. You need to stop that. Yeah. Um, if you guys decide you want to do this, then just do it. Yeah. Then just do it. That's mm -hmm. why I was behind the whole idea of a consent decree. Mm -hmm. Because then you don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. If you actually bind yourself to this, and I know they're usually used for, you know, law enforcement agencies that have done egregious things around the issues of civil rights. But if you do this with the legislature, first of all, it's bizarre. I mean, that's not what they're meant for. But OK, why not? Um, you really you get both the urgency and the sense of we need to think because mm -hmm. I just don't see how it can you then have to go back. You make it clear when you write it to the constituency 
we have to do this now. We are legally bound mm -hmm. to do this. So hold on, because <laughs> this is how this goes. I mean, it seems to me on some level, there's a kind of communication that needs to happen that may not ever happen. It's, um, you know, there is something about the legislature not being allowed to legally bind future legislator, leg right. legislatures. You would and have to have a, yes. So we could figure out a way around that. We could bind the administration and then we have to pass legislation sure. to enable the administration because we can bind the administration into the exactly. future. And when you said this usually only goes to, you know, police forces that have done egregious things with regards to racial justice, I would posit that perhaps the legislature has done egregious things with regards to racial justice by not ever acting up until this moment exactly um, and that we are complicit in um following sort of the lowest common denominator of our own communities yes. with regards to what needs to happen in them when exactly there are a few legislators that are still in the legislature who um, were involved in civil unions and passing civil mm -hmm. unions and when I hear them, this is only the end of my first biennium, been there for about mm -hmm. two years. And when they talk, and I've heard them talk about this moment many, many times over the last two years. And the light in their eye, and civil unions was a massive disappointing compromise. Yes, <laughs> that's <laughs> so, a queer person. I was kind of yeah. like, are you kidding me? Yeah, no, it's, I mean, yeah. I, I do not want second class citizenship for my relationships. Thank you. Exactly. So, but still, when they talk about it, um, it is with this incredible light in their eyes about this moment of shining political courage and taking risks and feeling that um, justice would prevail in relationships with constituents and constituencies. And I, I want to help my colleagues find that moment more regularly on more issues and more conversations. and things that are more complex than civil unions, which was, you know, a decree and then some paperwork and then, you know, and there we are. light and love, right? Um, whereas when we think about what it would look like for people of color in this state to have equitable rights and opportunities, that's, that's I mean, that's, you know, there's a complexity there and it's that complexity of training versus education. Sure. And, you know, that goes from our financial system to our policing system. Right. So I, yeah, go, I'm sorry. Oh, no, go ahead, Aitan. No, I'm not sure where I was going to go. Go ahead. I was just going to ask, and, and this is to both of you, um, why, what hampers political courage? Is it just that people want to be reelected? Um, or is there something else going on? Emily, that's you. <laughs> I get bitter. Yeah. Um, so I'm white and I get bitter too. So I, um, I'm going to try to swallow my bitterness because that's my responsibility. So um, right. you should not swallow your bitterness. Okay. You express it. <laughs> <laughs> um, ah. I don't. I don't entirely know. I don't. We have. Um, when I think about sort of a slow road of justice, I think a lot of it means getting different people into that building who have lived more complex lives, um, who have come to these issues, or um, whether that's through, you know, radical pedagogy or through um, deep reading or through life experience or a combination of all of those 
And so I don't, when I think about courage, um, I think courage for a lot of people is built, is built through lived experience of having to have courage and move and see that it's possible, whether that is courage of living in poverty or the courage to face someone who hates you and still get what you need to get done or what, you know, there are a lot of different ways we have courage in our lives. Um, but if you haven't lived a life where you've had to have courage, then you don't know that you can. Right. And I think for privileged folks in our communities, perhaps they've never had the opportunity to have that courage. Mm -hmm. And when I, um, I've been, I'm about to say this on the radio, I've been joking with friends lately about how really difficult it is to be a white man right now. Um, and I think a lot of the difficulty comes in not having the opportunity to have these difficult conversations before. Yes. Um, to not have the opportunity to see, you know, your brothers and sisters in their marginalization because it was never shown to you. Yes. Because you never looked for it. Like, I'm not forgiving anyone. But, no, but um, I think that if you've never, if you've never had to have courage, if you've never um, walked in someone's shoes, if you've never, um, if you've never had those opportunities because they've never hit you across the face over and over and over again throughout your life, then it becomes much harder. So I, just, I think in the absence of that, we need yeah. real training and education for the legislature Absolutely. and having the Human Rights Commission come for an hour to talk to the entire body about implicit bias and not even go back into coaching sessions is, is not, that will not beget courage. No. <laughs> so <laughs> we have just a, just a few minutes left for this very important conversation. Um, I am sorry we have to go by the clock. I want to touch base with both of you though. Where do we go next? You know, because this, you know, we don't want this moment to flounder like so many past moments have floundered. So what's next? How do we keep this ball moving forward? Personally, I think you start asking the community that question. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm tired of everyone asking the legislature this question. It's not relevant what they think, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, I want to hear what people out in Vermont think. Mm -hmm. you know, we did, the AG convened those fora that I was privileged to moderate along with Tabitha Moore and Curtis Reed. Um, we've been doing them around the state. And it was a very interesting thing that, you know, Don, TJ Donovan and all the people from the AGO, everybody was sitting and basically listening. And people from the community were speaking. And it was hard speaking. It was very difficult. Um, why are we not doing that? why are we not doing that we have a press we have we we know how to do that mm -hmm. um i think that that question needs to that you've just asked olga needs to be asked 
to the people who are directly affected by the legislation that's being worked on. Thank you. Thoughts, Emily? Um, I'm thinking about how we, you know, there's legislative mechanisms for doing that, communities touring the state doing hearings, and those are interesting, but they limit the conversation to just the committee of jurisdiction rather than the whole body. Hmm. And it's really important if we to get courageous work done that more of the body is on board with it. And so, you know, we have for the climate caucus, um, we toured the state and had conversations with climate stakeholders, you know, um, and then brought that sort of those conversations back into the climate caucus to say, what are we going to focus on this year um, across all the committees? And that's the, there's no real, you know, the issue caucuses are not, um, there's no legal, real formal connection to them and the work of the legislature. And it creates a broad-based support that wouldn't be, that's not available in the existing committee structure or the way one bill goes to one committee and stays in its little hole until everyone sort of digs it back up. And so I think there's some interesting opportunities there. Mm -hmm. Why I worry that it worked with the climate caucus because most of the particularly, and this is a broad generalization, I will absolutely own this broad generalization. The folks who are most affected by climate change are not the folks who tend to be the most um, vocal. Mm -hmm around the movement, folks who are most vocal around the climate change movement seem to be of the sort of liberal, white, more progressive, um, moneyed class right. in our state. So when I think about having um, forums in a impacted community, is there really four I? Is that really? No, four A. Four A, thank you. You're welcome. Fora, when I think about it, that's a very fun new word. When I think about having fora, um, I get very curious about how to get people to actually show up. It, <laughs> true. I, I think- Not that I don't think people will, just that I think we have to be careful and specific in doing that. Absolutely. Right and I, but I also think there's a part of me that says if you go to that extraordinary effort of doing something that is unusual in some ways unprecedented if if you put it out there so it's really clear and people don't show up that's on them mm -hmm. that's on them um there's a certain amount of responsibility that the rest of us have to take that if a moment is being presented that is not the kind of rush moment that we have right now. Um, if it's as opening and accommodating as it possibly can be, it's someone reaching out a hand and then the only thing you can do is either not reach out or reach out. So, you know, there's a certain amount of responsibility that those of us in the community have to take. Mm -hmm. Thank you, both of you, for your your comments. What it's leaving me with right now as, as a journalist, something that is so interesting because as a journalist, I have a very big microphone to the community. And 
I think a lot of people expect journalism to do something. Which is interesting because I really feel as a journalist, my job, and perhaps this is because this is what I'm good at naturally, is to hold space. Like, we put the information out there, but the community then needs to take that information and do something with it. You know, and and we can have, like, the voices section, like the Commons has, where people can send their opinions, or we can have columnists who state their opinions. But, like, the front page needs to hold space. Um, And one question I ask myself a lot is, am I holding the space for all parts of the community? Um, So that is something I wrestle with. But... But yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's like holding space is great, but again, where's the next step? Um, I, it's just a question I ask myself as as someone who's working in the community. I think um, it's really important um, and feels practically impossible. And you know, I think before we came on air, we all expressed that we were having. Um, fairly shitty weeks and I'm not supposed to say that on the air um, beep, beep. Beep, beep. <laughs> so I think we all express that we're having difficult weeks and um, I'm not feeling my most optimistic right now I'm just sort of tired from the end of the session and jumping back into work and trying to gather all of the pieces together um, and haven't had the opportunity to have sort of the positive reflection yet but when we get feedback, when we get input, we need to really put that into a real theory of change and then check back in around, you know, okay, we heard people express the problem. We heard people, you know, really clearly articulate the, what the solution state looks like, but we need to check in with all those stakeholders again about how we get from the problem to the solution. We can't just do it in the one fell swoop um, to make sure that everyone agrees that that's how you solve the problem to get to that ideal state. So we really need to be very articulate about all three stages of a theory of change when we're doing stakeholder engagement. I think that's the only way we can be successful. I agree, yeah. We are just about out of time. Any last minute thoughts either of you want to leave the community with? I'll say while Atan thinks for a moment that (laughs) I, um, for my, I'm really, really happy that so many folks are showing up right now to have this conversation um, and that people feel urgent about this and hope that we can use that urgency to continue having conversations with each other, that we focus that urgency on those conversations that we have with each other every single day so that we can build towards big picture solutions um, and sustain ourselves through that. Because the sustaining comes from so many of us focusing on something all at, all at once together. And so I'm, I'm, I'm glad that everyone cares. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I would say um, no therapist in their right mind would say that the day after you put your beloved dog down is a good day to look at your partner and say, I want a divorce. Reactive frames of mind are really bad places from which to operate. 
They are, however, necessary. And I wish people would give themselves the time to react and understand that that's a stage that is critical, but at the same time understand that is not the moment in which to make substantive change. Hmm. Be angry, be pissed as hell, and put it on all out there so there are issues to look at, but please don't put the dog down and that get divorced. It's just not gonna happen. Or it will happen and then there'll be a lot of unintended consequences. Thank you. Emily, Eitan, this has been a wonderful conversation and I wanna thank both of you because I know you're both tired and both yeah. sometimes this work is exhausting. Showing up Always. is exhausting. But thank you for showing up for today's conversation. Thank you, Olga. This has been the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 FM LP, Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters. You can find us on SoundCloud, Vermontitude, Vermontitude SoundCloud page, Vermontitude Facebook page. Emily, where can folks find you? EmilyKornheiser.org. You can find me as Emily Kornheiser on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, as well as ekornheiser at gmail.com or ekornheiser at ledge.state.bt.us. We have paused our weekly legislative fora and um, we'll restart them in a couple weeks when we are getting closer to um, coming back into the legislature. Eitan, Emily, Thank you. Everyone have a great weekend. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.